This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Helen Rees. Helen is the Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Empathy and Relational Science Program at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Rees is a psychiatrist who developed an empathy training approach based on research in the neurobiology and physiology of empathy and she's devoted her career to teaching and research in the art and science of the patient-doctor relationship. Here's my conversation on seven keys to increasing empathy with Dr. Helen Rees. To begin with, Helen, I'd love to know how it is that empathy became the focus of your research? Well, that answer actually has two levels. And the more proximal level is that as a psychiatrist, I began to notice that more and more of my patients in my practice were spending a lot of time sharing their unhappiness with how their visits to the doctors were going. And I realized that there really was a pattern of patients feeling unseen, unheard, and somewhat dismissed. And some of them felt that even their attempts to try to improve their health or make lifestyle changes weren't really being appreciated um, or um, reinforced by by their doctors. And what seemed at first to be kind of a unique window into what was going on in medical and surgical visits, I started to notice that there were headlines in major media talking about the need that for patients to have a more connected experience, wanting their doctors to be nicer and paying more attention. And I realized that there was really a um, a trend going on nationally because of many different circumstances happening in healthcare. And I really regretted knowing that even some colleagues that I knew were extremely empathetic and caring people were sometimes saying things or doing things that, that were not landing well. And I thought if empathy can be diminished or down-regulated in people, there has to be a way to up-regulate it. And so I took some time out to do a fellowship on the neuroscience of emotions and empathy to try to learn how we connect and how we can restore connection. 
Very good. Now, you said that this was multi-leveled, so this is one dimension of your interest came from your patients who were reporting their disappointment with their physicians. Was there another element as well? Well, I, you know, I I grew up in a family that um, went through a very traumatic World War II experience, and uh, my parents came to the United States um, just a few months before I was born as uh, refugees who really had to start their lives over again, um, who had pretty much lost everything and um, really had their faith and uh, a faith community uh, waiting for them on this side of the ocean to help them rebuild their lives. And I recognized, you know, from a very young age how hurt and wounded people are um, and the ripple effect of unkindness and cruelty on people. And I think living with both the amazing lessons of resilience and, um, you know, an ability to kind of bounce back and grow from very troubled times, I also recognized the residue of when people are treated uh, callously with no empathy and no compassion. And um, I think the early seeds of my interest in becoming a psychiatrist and also really trying to help people um, recover and heal and get to a better place in their lives, really, you know, those seeds were sown early in my life. Mm -hmm. In terms of the neuroscience of empathy, what do you think are the key discoveries that make a difference in terms of our understanding of empathy? Well, the neuroscience of empathy actually was a a story of really good news because what I learned is that we are really wired for empathy and we are hardwired to appreciate the emotions, their expression, and the pain and suffering of others uh, because those emotions land on our own brains through um, specialized neurons and um, sort of mirror circuits and shared neural circuits in our brains. So the good news about what we learn is that we're actually uh, built for empathy. And it's really more when we get distracted or pulled away from our natural-born ability to connect with others that we lose our, our capacities to empathize. So much of my interest uh, in learning how to teach it and whether we actually could lay in the, um, in the knowledge that, you know, even when we're not trying, we catch the emotions and the feelings of others. And then it's what we do with that that will uh, predict whether we respond um, with concern and with compassion or whether we um, shut that down. Well, I hope this won't seem like an uncaring question, but why did you experience it as such good news that neuroscience tells us that we're built for empathy? Well, because it showed that if if our brains are already wired for it, if, if it's getting 
diminished, we probably can bounce back, you know, as opposed to that only certain people have the wiring for it, and it's a special case when when we have it. So just the um, the generalizable um, condition that we have, that most of us are built for empathy, um, to me meant we have a good place to begin. Mm-hmm. Now, I know from your book, The Empathy Effect, that you have experience and evidence that it's possible to teach people to be more empathetic, that empathy can be taught. And we're going to get into that in this conversation. But here at the beginning, I want to address that person who says, gosh, you know, the last thing I need is more empathy. I barely know how to walk around in the world and have a conversation with somebody without being flooded by their feelings or turn on the news and I'm flooded and overwhelmed by the suffering of other people from a natural disaster or some other event someplace in the world. What would you say to that person who is distressed by how naturally empathetic they already are? Well, Tammy, you're you're really addressing uh, the other side of the spectrum uh, from what I was working with, and a very important one, and that is that some people actually have um, too much of these shared neural circuits that um, they get very affected by um, witnessing the pain and suffering of other people to a degree that it causes personal distress. And those people are the last ones that need empathy training. They come so easily and naturally that they actually have to learn how to regulate the exposure to pain and suffering because they can get so easily overwhelmed. And the other point you bring up is when any of us are bombarded with catastrophic news day after day, night after night, with people drowning in floods, burning up in fires, and suffering all kinds of pain and cruelty in, in, in difficult circumstances in other countries, um, we can get overloaded. And when we're overloaded, the last thing we can do is really come up with an empathic response because when there's that much uh, awareness of pain and suffering, we end up focusing on ourselves rather than others. And so limiting exposure is really important. And I've heard from really countless people that they can't watch the news every night, that they have to give themselves breaks from the media because um, just the degree and the intensity of bad news going on right now is more than they can bear. So we have to play a role in regulating, you know, how much exposure we have to, um, you know, to bad circumstances and suffering. Mm -hmm. In addition to regulating the amount of exposure, what other techniques or viewpoints can you offer someone who's easily overwhelmed with too much of someone else's feelings? Well, there are um, many different roads to to what I call self-regulation. Some people find that um, meditating and quieting their mind 
and sort of centering themselves um, at the start of every day is a way to begin refreshed and renewed before, you know, facing whatever the day brings. And many people, and I hope they learn this from my book, will will find some um, short techniques um, through diaphragmatic breathing um, that actually helps to slow down our heart rates and our lower our blood pressure uh, because by slowing down our respiration rates, we actually uh, trigger some pressure receptors um, in our necks that actually slow down the heart heart rate. So there are techniques people can learn um, to to do right before you know they know they're going to be in a difficult situation or before they're going to have to you know get together with a friend where something difficult or bad has just happened. So we have to get to know our own bodies almost the way we would an instrument like a violin. We need to know you know when it's when it's uh resonating with too much frequency and too much vibration and when we need to sort of soften it and, and down-regulate it so we can be um, in a calm and an open and receptive place. Mm-hmm. One of the techniques that you teach in the empathy effect is the idea of breathing out all the way to one's fullest extent not just taking, you know, a few breaths, but this idea of breathing all the way out. And then, of course, a big, deep, natural inhale will occur. I thought that was very helpful, that subtle tip of not, don't just take a few breaths, which I think we've all heard, but make sure that you breathe all the way out. Why is that so helpful? So thanks for picking up on that detail. I I agree with you that you know, I think from the time we're pretty young, we learn, like, take a deep breath or count to 10 before you respond. But those techniques can be kind of mental, you know, and not really do any physiological good for ourselves. And so the um, the tip in the book, which is to say to yourself, I am breathing in to the full extent of my breath. And to say that to yourself while you're breathing in it will slow the breath down to the point where it actually does have an effect in in um, the respiration rate, slowing down the heart rate. And then breathing out, I am breathing out to the full extent of my breath. So it gives our mind something to do while we are getting to that quiet place. And I think a lot of people don't really know or may not be aware of what's going on in their mind when they're saying I'm going to take a deep breath and they might their minds might still be quite full of chatter or anxiety and these words are a way to replace that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're hardwired for empathy which then gave you the idea that empathy could be taught to anyone. It could be developed. How did you go about creating your empathy training program? How did you figure out what works? Well, I I had over a year to read the neuroscience of empathy literature, which 
really got into fascinating ways that people were measuring empathy. And I realized that a lot of it had to do with creating experiments where people were looking at each other or not, or they were able to recognize um, emotional expressions or not, and that they were um, and one experiment we did at, at my own hospital, Mass General Hospital, we were measuring um, like physiologic activity during um, interactions, both positive and negative, between doctors and their patients. And so we were able to get a look at what makes people connect physiologically and not. So by reading all of this and being involved in in some experiments, I started to form a cluster of um, behaviors that either expanded connection or shut it down. And that's how I came up with my empathy acronym. Mm -hmm. I'd love to go through it, if that's okay, and we can go through each letter of empathy and the behavior that it communicates that we can develop. Let's start with E for eye contact. What do we know? (laughs) Well, we know from the moment an infant opens its eyes and can see its mother that the bonding hormone oxytocin is released when the two gaze at each other. And that um, physiologic hormonal response doesn't end at infancy. So through eye contact and meeting someone's gaze, we actually, first of all, show that we've actually met that person. And it hasn't been just a cursory, hi, how are you? But when you meet someone's gaze, you've met that person and something different happens. And uh, we know from scientific research that Uh, People who are in love, when they look at each other's eyes, a lot of oxytocin is released and also um, in friendship. And so by recommending that we meet, you know, our patients or really whomever um, with an intentional um, uh, meeting of the eyes, we're, we're beginning in a positive place. You suggest in the book that a physician can actually note the color of their patient's eyes and that this is a good practice. And since reading The Empathy Effect, I've tried this here in the Sounds True work environment, just saying I'm going to note people's eye color. And it's really profound. I'm connecting with people in a, in a totally different way. It's interesting. We do this exercise um, through my empathetics work, and um, we have people have a little conversation with each other, and then we ask them to close their eyes and and raise their hands if they can say, what is the eye color of the person I just spoke with? And it's it's amazing how few people do it intentionally. Um, And then when we say to, to try it again, and this time pay attention, they have a very different experience, just what you're saying. Uh, The one cautionary note, I guess, is I I didn't want anyone to think that I'd become creepy. And I wonder if you can talk a little (laughs) bit about that. I'm I'm actually quite serious. How do you make sure you're connecting without that kind of like, why is she staring at me like that? Well, that's the 
the real nuance is that we do not recommend staring. No one really wants to be stared at. And um, another important point is that in some cultures, especially Asian cultures, uh, a lot of direct eye contact is, is actually considered to be rude. So it has to be quite nuanced. And you can get a signal when you glance at someone's eyes, whether they're holding your gaze or whether they're looking away. And if you're getting that signal, you, you don't want to, you know, over overdo it, but, you you, it, you know, you reflexly turn your gaze away if the person isn't welcoming your gaze. Now, we're going to go through all seven of these behavior keys that increase the likelihood that we're going to have an empathic connection with somebody. But I think the question that's coming up for me, Helen, is underneath it, if somebody is low in empathy, can they just do these behaviors and will their feelings come online? I mean, can you just do it from the outside in like that? Well, we have a lot of evidence that people who start to do these behaviors will say that the quality of their interactions does change. And I'm not suggesting that it will happen overnight because some of these things have to be practiced. But, um, you know, in the study that we did, we sent questionnaires to the participants and they they said that something uh, fundamentally different happened in their emotion recognition and their ability to connect uh, with others. So it may sound kind of like acting or like just follow these steps, but they, they have to be experimented with just, you know, as you were saying about the eye contact, um, it's not a one size fits all and it takes practice. But the opposite, doing none of these things will pretty much ensure that you're not connecting with people. Okay, let's go to the second key, the letter M. What does M stand for? So M stands for muscles of facial expression. And um, that simply means pay attention to the person's face before you and recognize that their face is a roadmap of emotions. And if you are puzzled or you're not sure what someone's feeling based on what you're seeing, um, you can always ask. But the biggest uh, tip here is to actually look people in the face and don't be looking at the computer or your iPhone when you're talking with others because then you'll never, you'll never know what, what they may be feeling. Mm -hmm. When you look at people's faces and you're deciphering or decoding the emotions that are going on, what are some of the big things you're looking for? Well, I look to see if um, if they're smiling. I look to see if their eye muscles are involved, because true happiness um, involves both the the muscles around the mouth and the eyes. Um, and a fake smile, you'll just see, you know, the lips turned up, but you won't see any involvement in the eyes. So that's one thing I look for. I look for furrows on the brow to see if there could be fear or consternation. And I look to see how widely open the eyes are just to see if there's any element of um, fear or surprise. Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to connect with someone empathically, perhaps it's in a client relationship, that kind of thing, 
What are you doing with your face intentionally, if anything, or are you just relaxing and being yourself? Well, you know, there's this um, thing called motor mimicry, which is the fact that we're constantly um, uh, feeding back facial expressions back and forth when we're talking with people without even realizing it. I mean, most people, if you're telling them something funny, are not going to sit there with a still face. Or if you're happy, they'll, you know, so these, these things are sort of transferring back and forth at a pretty unconscious level. But as a psychiatrist, I am a little more aware, like if someone's telling me something deeply troubling or sad, um, I, I'm more aware of, of what my face is doing, probably just because I've, you know, studied this for so long. Okay, let's move on in terms of empathy training. The P stands for posture. What posture promotes empathic connection? So probably the most important thing there is sitting at eye level um, or being at eye level so that if someone's sitting down and you keep standing up, there's going to be kind of a mismatch in your ability to, um, to connect. We also teach and train about noticing people's posture as an indication of alertness and happiness uh, as opposed to being slumped down and dejected or depressed. Um, So it's both the position that people are taking and also what the body language is is, um, indicating. Okay, A is for affect. So affect is the scientific word for emotion. And affect is, um, it's really interesting. We might be talking with someone and not even aware that we have picked up on their emotional feeling. So one thing I do is I I try to consciously name the affect. Um, So if someone seems um, sad or anxious or confused, I'll actually use one of those words to myself, and it makes me focus much more um, and use a certain lens um, that I'm listening to to them with. Okay, now we have tone of voice. This seems very important to me. Well, you're you're absolutely right because we convey. Um, much more than 85% of what we're saying through our tone of voice. We can say the same exact words, but they can mean, you know, like 30 different things depending on our tone. So one thing is to just notice the tone. Is it soft? Is it halting? Is it um, fluid? Is it loud, bombastic? Um, And one thing that is um, important is that if someone's speaking softly and quietly, that trying to match the uh, volume, the pace, and the rhythm of the person you're speaking with um, actually makes them feel more understood. So, um, especially in you know in my area in the patient-doctor relationship, if if a person is speaking quietly and they're getting a response that's loud and abrupt, it's going to feel like a mismatch and it's not going to build, um, build the empathy. 
so tone is really important in what you're hearing and also what you're delivering with your own tone of voice. I mean, is it always true that a calm, slow, soft tone of voice is what's going to help someone feel heard the best? Is that always true? Um, if they're speaking that way, it, it probably will work. Um, if someone is, you know, talking quickly and more loudly and you answer with a completely different tone, that's going to feel like a mismatch too. So it's more about matching. And I say that with the caveat that if someone is, you know, really triggered and loud and yelling, it, I don't recommend matching that because that will just make the conversation escalate. So we want to match more when people are um, talking about neutral things or, um, you know, soft and slow and and, and conversations where, where the, the mutuality and the back and forth seems to be working. Here's an interesting example, Helen, you and I having this conversation. So I might start with a deeper, slower tone because that's just kind of my natural sort of set point as a person, you might be a little bit more quick and kind of mentally sharp, but we're having this conversation about empathy. So we're going to find each other somewhere in the middle. Yes? We're both... I think so. Yeah. We'll have to listen to it and see (laughs) if that happened. But I I think that is basically what, you know, really tuning in um, will result in. All right, let's hear what the H stands for in your seven keys to empathic training. So um, initially, I just had H stand for hearing, which means, you know, listening and, you know, really taking in what the other person is saying. But I expanded the H to hearing the whole person because... uh, I think this would be true in other um, in other t- types of interactions, but in healthcare, if we were just listening to um, you know a patient talking about their ailment or their injury or their you know their disease, we might lose a focus on hearing them as a whole person, sort of what's going on in their lives and you know what other factors might be contributing, you know, to worsening chest pain, for example. So I wanted to have the H stand for more than just hearing, but actually hearing the whole person so we don't lose sight of um, the bigger picture. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. And what are your tips for professionals 
who are working with someone and, you know, someone comes in and they have a, you know, problem with their knee or whatever they're reporting as their chief complaint, how do you mm -hmm. get to hearing the whole person and not just why they're in, in the doctor's office complaining about whatever they're complaining about? Right. So we, we really encourage asking about the chief concern, not just the chief complaint. Mm -hmm. And the chief concern, you know, could be elicited by saying, you know, how is this knee injury going to affect you at, um, in, at home and at school? And then we might hear that the chief concern is, you know, I have a football scholarship riding on, uh, uh, on this, and um, if I can't play, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my scholarship. So that's a whole other level of concern that, you know, will need to be heard and, um, you know, have, have some conversations around that. But if we just focus on the body part, we're, the person might leave the office, you know, even more anxious and upset than when they came in. Mm -hmm. Are there any leading questions that are helpful in this regard? Yes. Um, so what's worrying you the most about this? Or what are people at home worried about, you know, with, with your chest pain getting worse? So you can hear maybe something in displacement that the patient might not be saying themselves, um, you know, such as my family's worried that I'm getting, you know, a little down or depressed or something. So um, asking some open-ended questions that get to what the other concerns are and not just the reason they came in. Okay, and finally, why? The seventh key here. So why stands for your response. And the why, I think, requires the most explaining because most people might think that the why is about what you're going to say next. And it's really not about what you're saying. It's more what you're feeling. Yeah. Like, are you comfortable with this person? Are you in tune? Does it feel like everything's going well? Because most feelings are mutual. And if you're feeling good, chances are the other person is. But if your response is um, some irritation or annoyance or just feeling a little out of sorts, you might be picking that up from the other person. So your response is sort of an invitation to take a personal inventory with, you know, to say to yourself, how's this going or how did that go? And to kind of reflect and um, if possible, you know, if there's any doubt to say, you know, how do you think we're doing? Am I, am I really understanding what, you know, what, what you were hoping for today. Um, and so it's an ability to check out both in real time and also it's uh, an ability to go back if, if an interaction went poorly or you have regrets about, you know, what, what was said. Um, it's also a kind of reminder to, if there needs to be an apology, to offer that, or if there needs to be a, you know, can we meet again? I, I felt like we may not have gone to everything last time. So it helps to continue conversations that, you know, might have had the potential to, to 
and in a dissatisfying way. I'm curious, Helen, when you offer this training to people and you teach these seven different skills, if at the end some people have trouble changing all that much. Obviously, some people, they learn these skills and it completely changes how they go about things. But I wonder if there are other people who, let's say their heart is shut down for some reason and they identify the affect, but they can't really connect with it because it would require some internal opening that they're not ready to do. What do you do in those kinds of situations? Well, you're really getting at the point, the important point, that people are at different levels of readiness and preparation for this training. And, you know, our goal is to expand uh, people's perceptions of others and to give them some concrete skills to use. And not everyone's going to be able to use them all right away. I had um, one uh, physician who really learned how to say, that must be hard for you. And um, this particular doctor did not feel very empathetic and found empathy kind of difficult. But what she learned was by saying these words um, that really hadn't been part of her conversation before, that patients started to feel very appreciative, and they started to say, thank you, I re- you know, that means a lot to me. And by changing this one thing, she really has come to really enjoy her work more because it, it sort of was a little crack in the door to really connecting with others. So some people will take, you know, a suggestion that's part of our training and it will land in a useful place for them, but they might not be able to embrace the whole thing at once. But then there's greater openness for the other pieces sometimes down the road. Have you seen that there's a certain profile of the type of person that empathy training is difficult for them, like this doctor that you're referring to? Um. Like something from their so. early background or something like that? Well, I, I think it's, I don't know about the early background because I don't know most of these people's, you know, backstory. But um, I do know that um, some people are less, um, they, they have uh, more trouble, like, uh, connecting to emotion. And some of these people are extremely cerebral, you know, research-oriented people who spent more time in, in labs and maybe in school than in clinical work. And so it's a reorientation for, for some. And I would say that that might be, you know, one of the, the more challenging groups. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if there's anything about medical training itself in the way that it's currently conducted that almost trains the empathy out of us. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, we're hardwired for empathy. So it's this natural ability 
that we have. But then we all go through our educational system and then especially the intensity of something like getting a medical degree and the demands on the student, whether it's demands that they become even more cerebral than they might be naturally, or that they figure out how they're going to conduct themselves in a 30-minute increment or less with the patient. I'm curious what you think about that. Well, that's a pretty well-documented phenomenon that medical students come to training with very high levels of empathy. It's actually what makes them choose the medical profession. And um, this is changing now, but usually for the first two years of medical school, they have almost no patient contact, and they're learning, you know, microbiology, histology, pathology, uh, biochemistry, and all of these difficult subjects. And, um, you know, it remains kind of in a a competitive environment. And many medical schools are realizing that... um, the students can kind of get a little burned out before they even get to the clinical part because it's just been, you know, now six years of rigorous study and not much connection to people. So they're introducing more patient contact earlier on, and it seems to be having a very good effect. Um, And in, uh, you know, the medical training tradition has been quite, quite intense, rigorous, and sometimes um, a culture of bullying and, uh, you know, calling people on the spot and um, shaming them. And these these tactics, um, many people now agree, are contributing to a diminishing of empathy because if you're treating people during their training in an unempathic and uncompassionate way, you're actually transmitting norms um, for the profession. So there's a great deal of work going on now uh, with empathy training, resilience training, mindfulness, and um, you know, really trying to turn this 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 educational system around. When it comes to teachers embodying empathy and teaching with empathy, what do you think are some of the most important qualities for a teacher to embody? So the point you're making right now is the importance of role models and having um, teachers who really exemplify, you know, both the... um, compassionate interest in patients and also, you know, the, the scientific and medical knowledge to, to, to treat their illnesses. These types of, I call them master clinicians, they know how to listen. They, know, they always sit down when they're at the bedside. You never see a master clinician standing up. They sit down, they're at eye level, and they connect with the person's humanity. They're not just checking a list like, how's the wound healing? And, you know, it looks like, um, you know, you're able to uh, use the bathroom again, so we're going to be able to get you out tomorrow. So it's not just on the technical, you know, functioning of the body, but it's a shared humanity. And that 
it, that is what medical students need to be exposed to. And I would say in any training industry, like that's what you want to, um, to, to, that's the kind of culture you want to create. But it has to be done by modeling. And let's take this empathy training in education to young kids. What do you think is the most important training in schools for young children, especially when it comes to developing empathy for children who are different? The subtitle of your book includes that we will learn how to work and connect across differences. So how can we bring this into our educational system? So my first answer is to introduce it as soon as possible. And developing children's fluency with expressed emotion is just, I think, one of the most fundamentally important uh, lessons and skills that young kids can learn. So um, there are programs, uh, one of them is called Open Circle, where children come together and the whole purpose of being together is to talk about feelings. And so, you know, in a classroom with children with diverse backgrounds, um, if if somebody's sad, um, there'll be a question about sadness and an encouragement to talk about it. And kids can learn at a really young age um, to listen to whatever the the other child's story is and to learn the language of um, the experience. So making emotion um, detection and creating a safe place for its expression is the most fundamental um, uh, skill and caring that can be shown, you know, already in kindergarten. It's much harder to teach these skills in high school or college or medical school if listening skills weren't taught early on. Now, it's interesting that you describe the training that's needed as a fluency in expressed emotion. Do you think young children, it would be great if they could identify 20 different feelings? Is it okay just to know a handful? <laughs> well, I, I, that's a wonderful question. I, I think that, um, you know, um, children don't have the words for certain feelings. And, um, you know, so they they might only know sadness, anger, and happiness, you know, with words. So there are some programs that use puppets to act out things like unfairness, and then the teacher will use the word or will say, you know, so if a puppet steals, let's say, an apple from another puppet and hides it, um, that can open a little conversation with the, with the children and they'll say, you know, was this, you know, they'll say that was bad or something. And then the teacher can introduce the word unfair, you know, and it made him sad or, or it made him angry, whatever. So by using little scenarios that 
give names to um, interactions that either go well or or are harmful, a child's emotional vocabulary can grow. Mm -hmm. I mentioned, Helen, this idea of helping people connect across differences. And whether this is starting with how we educate young children in schools or if it's something we're introducing in other ways in our culture, I think this is a big concern that people have. We see the increase in bullying. We see an increase in hate crimes. How do we help people empathize with people who are really different? Well, again, it gets to the appreciation and celebration of difference. And, um, you know, there are... I agree with you. The need today for people to see each other as human and all part of the human fabric and not separated and um, polarized is, I've never seen a need greater than today. One way to help with this situation is um, using the keys that we describe in the book. But also, um, research shows that collaborating on projects with people who are different from you, and some organizations use, um, you know, all kinds of different tactics for this, but I heard one where people had to form a team and, and put a bike together. And when they mixed up people who were, you know, from diverse backgrounds, Seeing how they worked together, they had to collaborate and cooperate, it really broke boundaries down between them. There's also really good evidence that reading about other people from other cultures in in really um, good literature, so where you get into the mind and the experience of another person's life, um, definitely improves empathy. Organizations, whether it's educational or medical, business, um, have to take a stand for respect for all people and look for opportunities like this, Um, you know, to bring in speakers who talk about unconscious bias. I think that Railing against bullying is important, but coming up with solutions is even more important. And um, it, it, it has to be introduced really at, at every level from grade school on up to um, organizations and businesses and, and institutions. So, Helen, I know that one focus area for you has been the patient doctor relationship, and we've been talking some about empathy training in education. But there's one other area that I want to make sure we talk about, which is empathy in business. And as I was researching for this conversation, one of the things that I read was that different parts of our brain are involved in analysis than when we're being empathetic. This lights up different parts of our brain when we're analyzing versus when we're being empathetic. And I thought, God, this really poses a problem in the business world. (laughs) 
And this may also pose a problem in the medical world, too. You know, you're analyzing data. No, you're empathizing with a client. Different parts of our brain are being activated. How do we bring the right integration here? Well, you're referring to the importance of um, what they call mental agility, and that's the ability to flip back and forth um, between different modes of our brain. And um, you're right to, to bring this to light because sometimes when we're in um, an analytic mode of thinking, you know, um, we get very focused and narrow. Um, and then when we're with, you know, trying to empathize and connect with people, it really calls for an openness and uh, non, non-judgment and non-linear thinking. And I, some people are better at one than the other. And um, I think even labeling this or, you know, making, raising awareness that these different modes um, are taking place can help people recognize when they're in one mode or the other. But different people have different endowments in different you know, parts of their brains, and some will find one mode far easier to live in. Um, And the empathy training that we develop, you know, we're not trying to shut off people's minds so that they're not, you know, using the algorithms they need to come up with the right diagnosis and a treatment, but we're we're really trying to um, teach how to open a conversation, how to get to the middle um, with both the the technical aspects and also remembering to ask questions and then how to close it down with empathy. So there are ways to parse out what we, you know, how we're interacting with people by thinking about them as, as having a beginning, a middle, and an end. And what, in your experience, promotes mental agility? Uh, practice. I would say that with the um, the increased technology that's in the room with physicians and patients right now, that the um, probably many people listening to this have been in doctors' offices where um, the back is turned to them and a lot of typing is going on into a computer. And so what used to be a very natural, you know, person-centered uh, conversation is now the technical uh, distraction is, is front and center. And this is one reason why our empathy training is in such high demand right now, because uh, part of the reason all those patients were complaining in my office is that the introduction of the the computer, you know, just steered everything toward the technical focus and lost the interpersonal. Now as healthcare providers are becoming more facile with the computer or they're having scribes enter the data or using other technologies, um, the arc is turning with more emphasis back toward the patient because everyone's realizing that 
without care, compassion, and empathy, there's no partnership in the healthcare experience, and people's health will get worse. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a quote, Helen, that I pulled from the beginning of the book. And here's what the quote says. It says, scientific studies have shown that there's an inverse relationship between power and empathy. And I thought, this is really interesting. People who are interested in being more powerful in the world in some way have an inverse relationship with empathy. I thought, this is not good when I read this. And I'm curious if you can (laughs) help me understand this more. And and honestly, I would like to be a very empathetic person, but I'm also interested in being a powerful person. So I don't want there to be an inverse relationship here. Mm -hmm. Well, um, it's really an interesting phenomenon. And this doesn't mean that all people who are in power positions are unempathetic. But it turns out that people in powerful positions um, often are less dependent on um, on getting along with others because of their power if they're the boss or if they're the you know the unit chief people do what they say and it's and um, when they have a lot of power, they may forget that the interpersonal connection and relationship can really fortify the relationships because people will follow directions, do what what they say without necessarily so much um, empathic engagement. But we also know that really effective and powerful leaders can do both. Um, I think the stereotype of like a CEO who um, barks orders and just says, you know, get it done and, you know, forgets to um, really empower the the workforce with a vision and with a sense of all contributing to something great together, um, you know, something's lost when that when that um, attitude isn't there. But another aspect of this power and empathy that I talk about in the book is, um, you know, some there's some studies that show that uh, drivers of expensive cars are, um, for the most part, not as nice on the road as drivers of less expensive cars. And um, that the... Um, these studies show that it, drivers of expensive cars cut people off more. They, you know, go right into pedestrian lanes and they don't follow traffic rules um, as well. And some of that has the speculation is that they feel entitled to just take up more space in the world. That that the rules don't apply to them. And um, also that the consequences of getting a traffic ticket um, may not be as felt as deeply as if, you know, if if someone has less um, or less fewer means. So um, power can have a kind of a self-centered effect um, that can forget the importance of 
really working well with others. Um, but powerful people also have an incredible opportunity to influence how those relationships get set in organizations and what kind of norms will be followed. So I'd say it would go kind of both ways. It seems like we need to hold up a vision of empathically attuned leadership. That's absolutely true. And when an organization has such a leader, everyone's uh, expectations of themselves rises. Okay, just one final quote from the book that I pulled here from The Empathy Effect, and here it is. Without expanding empathy beyond our in-groups and borders, civilization as we know it will not survive. Empathy training is the key transformative education. That's a very powerful quote. Civilization as we know it will not survive. Tammy, I think what you said a few minutes ago about the state of um, incivility, bullying, taunting others, lack of sensitivity to difference, um, really diminishing and putting people down for not being, um, you know, like the dominant race. Um, The corrosive effects of this kind, of these kinds of norms are deeply, deeply troubling and deeply concerning. I think many people recognize these tactics as being not just offensive, but really morally um, challenged. And we need to have a, an answer to these kinds of um, new norms that we're seeing every day on television and in the news, and a call for people to unite as one humanity. If we com- continue to splinter and disparage people of color, people from other countries, uh, calling them names, our, our country is not going to be the same. And I guess as a child of immigrants, I can see the incredible value in um, coming with different cultural norms, um, sharing those, uh, really enriching a society, and also bringing a type of vigor and a type of um, hope that uh, we can't afford to lose in this country. And so I, I know that your readership is very tuned into a, you know, a civil and compassionate way of being. And I just want to encourage everyone through my book and through our conversation to really dig deep and um, find ways to connect with others and to really heal the fraying fabric of our society. I've been speaking with Helen Reese. She's the Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the author of the new book, The Empathy Effect, Seven Neuroscience-Based Keys for Transforming the Way We Live, Love, Work, and Connect Across Differences. Helen, uh, thank you so much for your good work and for all of the skills that you're teaching people. I really learned a lot from the book and from our conversation. Thank you. 
Thank you, Tammy. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world. Thanks for listening.